Good evening. It is good to be together this evening. It's good to see each one of you. If you are a guest, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here. If you would be, open your Bibles. We won't have slides tonight, and, and we're going to be mostly in Philippians, the second chapter. Now, I would like to share with you at least one, if not two, verses of introduction. So uh, if you want to be turning to 2 Corinthians 8, uh, we'll be looking at that in just a moment. That's on page 1030 in the Bible that's in your pew, if you want to be looking there. And then we'll be making our way shortly after that to Philippians, the second chapter. I almost feel like I need to apologize to you. It's pretty tough when the preacher goes long and preaches a sermon about no complaining. It's kind of a, a good setup for me, but probably not for you. But uh, that is just the way it happened, not intentionally. We studied a lot this morning out of Philippians, the second chapter, and what I'd like for us to do is come back tonight and just see really the bulk of that chapter, how really there are three lessons to learn from three tremendous examples in that chapter. Now, the three lessons are very similar. It's where Paul lays out a challenge for us and then saying, learn from, Paul, learn from Christ, learn from Timothy, learn from Epaphroditus, these things. And so we'll make our way there in just a moment. I'd like for you to think of what Jesus did for us and what he did for us can be viewed from many different angles. But I'd like for you to think about, especially from the standpoint of him leaving heaven and coming to this earth. About four years ago in August, a sheriff in Illinois, it was Lake County Sheriff Mark Curran, did something that was really unusual. He said that he wanted to be locked up. And of course, it was a voluntary lockup. And what he said was that he wants to be able to identify with what the inmates are going through. He wants to be a better sheriff and he wants to be able to do a better job at rehabilitation. And so he said, perhaps the best way I could learn this is going in and living among them. And so he lived incarcerated for a period of time. And in that, he tried to figure out ways that he could better serve to the rehabilitation process of those around now, what was unusual, of course, though, was all the other inmates did not get to volunteer the date that they wanted to leave, and he got to enjoy that. But when you hear of that, I think of Undercover Boss, this television show that many of you are probably familiar with, the idea of, of, of going and living among and learning from. But when I first read that story, the first thing I thought about was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ having the comforts and the riches of heaven and coming down into the poverty of this earth and taking upon himself the form of a man, not God only, but God and man. And with that, all of the challenges, and it would be easy for us to say, why would he do that? Why would he give those things up? All of us have heard stories about someone who, who was in a, a mighty and, and a high position that maybe they wanted to marry someone, but to be able to marry them, they had to leave all of this behind and, if you will, come down and marry that individual. Listen, there is no example that we could give out of all the undercover bosses, out of all the marriages that have taken place. There's nothing that we could give that would be a greater example of what Jesus gave up to come to this earth. And so this is the way Paul, in 2 Corinthians, the eighth chapter, he says it this way in verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor. That though you through his poverty might become rich. Turn over to one more passage. Hebrews, the fourth chapter. 
page 1064, the Bible that's in your pews, 1064, Hebrews the fourth chapter, not changing the subject, just now listening to what the Hebrew writer says about this. Let's look at verse 14, Hebrews 4 and 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that's Jesus leaving heaven, coming to this earth. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians, look at the riches that he had and look how he gave those up to become poor so that in our poverty spiritually, we can become rich. And then the Hebrew writer says, think what the blessing it is for us. We don't offer a challenge of, of a plea or a cry to God and then think to ourselves, oh, he would never understand. He doesn't know what I'm going through. Instead, he can sympathize with all of our challenges because he has been human. And he has been tempted in all points like we. But when we go to Philippians, the second chapter, we see that this great teaching is calling us to not only understand how Jesus has given up so much to come to earth like us and how he can better understand us. But the other side of that coin in Philippians, the second chapter is Paul saying, I want to show you the poster child of humility and obedience. And so he holds up a verbal portrait of Jesus Christ. And he says, if we can learn the humility like Jesus had, and he displayed the greatest display of that, of leaving heaven, coming to this earth and dying for us. And if we can learn the obedience, and he displayed the greatest portrait of that, of leaving heaven, coming to this earth and dying for us. Now, he puts some other wonderful details in there, but just notice that as we read here, we're in Philippians, the second chapter, the plea, just as we looked at this morning in verse five, is that the mind or our attitude being let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2 and 5, 1043, the Bible that's in your pew, 1043. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. You see, that's the riches. That's the riches that he had in heaven. He was God. But notice verse 6, the poverty who being in the form of God, he came to this earth, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Let's pause there for just a moment and think about this humility. He was God. He left the comforts of being in heaven to come to this earth not as royalty, not as an earthly king. He came as a man and not just any man. He came as a bond servant. Look at the rest of verse eight. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled, there's our word, he humbled himself and became, our other word, obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Back in verse seven, it says he took upon himself the form of a bondservant. So he, God, came to this earth, took on the form of man, not a man of reputation, not a king upon this earth, but a man 
in the form of a servant. And not just any servant, but a servant that was willing to die. He didn't cry out at the end, I'm going to escape from this. I can't stand it any longer. He humiliated himself even to the point of death. And then we also, in that last verse, we read about the obedience. It was the same way with the obedience. When do we learn the most about obedience? We learn the most about obedience the harder it is to obey. Jesus learned just how difficult it could be to obey when he went to the cross. I'd like for you to see it again. We're going back to the same passage we just left. I should have told you to keep your finger there. Go back to Hebrews. We read the fourth chapter just a moment. I'd like for you to look at the fifth chapter. Hebrews, the fifth chapter. <clears throat> look with me, if you will, verse 7, 8, and 9. And notice the emphasis that the Hebrew writer writes here about the obedience of Christ. Hebrews 5, 7, 8, and 9. Who in the days of his flesh, 1064, Hebrews 5, verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. And a pause there. That was a picture of the Garden of Gethsemane, we suppose. And there would be those vehement cries. There would have been those, those sweat as if it were great drops of blood. There would have been those tears. And, and all of this was because he was dreading death. But to be obedient to God... He was going to have to go through death. His human nature was saying, I don't want to be that obedient. I don't want to go to that point of death. Let's read the next verse. Verse 8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation. To whom? To all who obey him. He learned just how committed he was to obeying as he obeyed even to the point of death. And then he offers that eternal life to those who also learn that way of obedience. Listen, it's powerful when you read in Revelations, the second chapter, and he's writing the seven churches of Asia, and he writes to the church of Smyrna, and he talks about knowing the blasphemy that they're enduring. And he even talks about knowing, he tells them that you're going to have suffering. And he says, as a matter of fact, some of you are going to be thrown into prison for 10 days. Now, because it's the book of Revelation, we don't assume that that was a literal 10 days. That's probably symbolism. Maybe he's saying it's a beginning and an end time. But then that was for some of them, he said. And for others, apparently... Others are going to die because then he closes out that verse by saying, be thou faithful unto death and I'll give thee the crown of life. Do you realize that Jesus wasn't the last one that was expected to be obedient unto death? Shortly after Jesus was obedient unto death, there were others like Stephen and like James, the brother of John. You flip just a few pages through the book of Acts and what were they? They were obedient unto the point of death. And the Bible ends with him telling an entire congregation, there's going to be suffering and I'm not going to sweep down and deliver you from the suffering. I'm going to tell you what you need to do in the midst of the suffering. Obey. Obey as you're taking your last breath. 
How difficult would that be for New Testament Christians to do if Jesus had not already been that example? Listen, it's powerful and it's profound that Paul can write in Philippians, the second chapter, and he can say, absolutely. You're called to be humble because look how humble Jesus was. You're called to be obedient, even if it costs you your life, because look how obedient Jesus was. Now, it would be easy for us to say, but that was Jesus. Are others that obedient? Are others that humble? And so before we leave this very same chapter, Paul says, I want to talk to you about two men that are humble, obedient men. Almost as if to say, Christians, you can do this. Let's look at the first man that he looks at. We're in Philippians, the second chapter, <clears throat> and we're going to pick up in verse 19. Uh, just for a reminder, I love to see how texts fit together. We're skipping over verses 12 through 18, which much of what we studied this morning was keying out of those particular verses. And so now let's pick up the verses right beyond that as he gives an example of humility and obedience in the life of Timothy. We're reading in Philippians, the second chapter, Page, uh, verse 19, page 1043. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Now let's pause here and just make sure we all have the setting. Maybe not everybody was here this morning. Remember, Paul is writing this from prison. And Paul loves the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi was a healthy church spiritually. It was a strong church. And this church had supported Paul several times financially on the missionary journey. Paul knows them well. He loves them well. They know Paul. They love him well. And so now here he is in prison. Paul can't jump on a ship and say, I want to go visit you guys and I want to encourage you and I want to know how you're doing. So since he cannot do that, he says, I'll tell you what I want to do. Since I can't come to you, I want to send Timothy to you because I want you to be encouraged and I want to be encouraged by knowing how you're doing. Now notice this compliment he gives about Timothy. Look at verse 20. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. What a compliment. For all seek their own, not the things which are Christ Jesus not a compliment. But you know his proven character that as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel or with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. For just a moment, I'd like to capitalize on the description in 20 and 21. You see, 20 points out the humility of Timothy and the obedience of Timothy. Look there again. I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. He's convinced that Timothy will go. That points out to the obedience. We'll emphasize that in just a moment. But he's also convinced that Timothy will care. 
That points out to the humility. In this very same chapter, back up and let's, we mentioned this this morning, but let's read it. Look in Philippians, the second chapter. Look at verse three and four and think about Paul saying to Timothy or about Timothy, I'm gonna send him because I know he'll care for you. And think about these words. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you Look, not out only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And then he gives the example, like we would say, what does that look like lived out? And he would hold up the poster of Jesus Christ. And then we would say, does anybody really live like that? And then he would hold up a picture of, of Timothy and he would say, by the way, this is the man I'm wanting to send to you. He will care for you. He will put your interest up. He will esteem you. He is humble, in other words. Paul mentions Timothy over 20 times in the letters that he has written. Paul loved Timothy. He believed that Timothy was a good man, an obedient man, and a humble man. But the very, next word, the very next verse implies that not all Christians around him were so humble or so obedient. Look again there at verse 21. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ. Now, if we understand this right, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, hey, I'm in Rome. And there are hundreds of Christians but they're seeking their own way. When I'm looking for someone who will go, when I say, I need somebody to travel from Rome and I need for them to go all the way to Philippi and I need for them to check on a church there. Notice the last part. They'll seek their own, but not the things which are of Christ. Um, are you, are you paying to send somebody? No. I'm looking for someone who's not seeking their own. They're seeking to serve Christ. Oh, I, I tell you, I'd like to, but I, I've got so many things going on. I tell you what, I, I'm just not going to be able to do that. We know that there were probably hundreds of Christians in Rome. As a matter of fact, when he writes the book of Romans, he greets by name 26 Christians. And so now he says, I've got one that I want to send you, but no one else would go. Everybody else is seeking their own. Brethren, there's a big difference in saying I'm a Christian and living a life that proves that we are humble and that we are obedient and that we can answer with Isaiah and say, here I am, Lord, send me. Can we answer with Timothy? Paul was confident. If I asked Timothy to go, Timothy would say, yes, sir. I'll be glad to go for you. And yet he also refers to so many others that lived around him and said, they're too busy seeking their own ways. You see, we're talking about humility again. Seek the Lord or seek your own. We're talking about obedience. Are you willing to go when the Lord says go? One scholar, and he said it, I thought so wisely. He said, everybody falls under either Philippians 2 and 21 or Philippians 1 and 21. Isn't that interesting? Let's read these two verses back to back. Philippians 1 and 21, as we study this morning, says, for me to live is Christ 
and to die is gain. 2 and 21, for all seek their own and not the things which are of Christ Jesus. What a difference. If I'm alive, I want Christ's will to be done. If I'm alive, I always seek for my will to be done. Which is it? Jesus Christ was all about the will of the Father. And Paul says, I want to show you another example. Timothy. Not only am I going to show him to you, I want to send him to you. He's going to take care of not just you, he's going to take care of your state. If I ask you, do you care about your coworkers that you work around tomorrow? Probably most every one of you would say yes. Now, what if we asked it this way? Do you care about the spiritual state of your coworkers? That changes the question. Paul says, I want to send a man to you that cares about your state, your condition, where you are spiritually. When's the last time you've asked one of your friends that, just that question? If you never have, I challenge you to do it. Sincerely ask, how are you doing spiritually? There's no important question that we could ask to truly care for someone's state. But then there's this third example, and it's Epaphroditus. We begin reading at 25. I tell you what, there's a lot tucked away in this that really we'd need a sermon or two to really dive into it. So to kind of speed up this thought process, could I tell you real quick what these verses, I believe, are saying? And then let's read them, and you see if that's what they're saying, and that'll kind of speed this up. Remember, we're at Philippi here. Paul's over here at Rome, and he's wanting to send Timothy to check on him. But vice versa, there was a time where those in Philippi said, we've got a financial collection that we've taken up that we want to help Paul. We just got to have somebody to deliver it. And apparently, as Epaphroditus has said, I'd love to go. I'll go and take that money to Paul. Now, in that day and time, that would have been a risk to travel with money. But he says, I'll go. And apparently, when he got there, he became physically ill. Now, have you ever noticed that when you're sick away from home, you usually also become homesick? And so what's implied here by two different phrases is that he was deathly ill, but he was also homesick. But then he heard that the people at Philippi heard that he was sick, and then he became not worried for his own condition. He became worried that the people were worrying about him. It kind of tells you how tender his heart was. And so Paul writes and he says, implying he's going to get well enough to come home. I want to send him back. And when he comes back, do you think maybe some of them would have been tempted to say, I can't believe you. We send you to help a missionary and instead he has to take care of you. What kind of help were you? What a failure as a, as a messenger. And so Paul is making sure that they understand when I send him back to you, I want you to be humble. And I want you to esteem him and I want you to hold him up. Listen, we make a terrible mistake when we think that our position ought to be let's punish people that make mistakes. 
And oftentimes individuals that already regret their mistakes, we go into a punishment mode and what happens is they don't ever want to try anything again. If somebody's done their best job teaching a Bible class and that Bible class kind of fell off the cliff and didn't go so good, you know what they need? They need somebody humble around them that'll help hold them up, not kick them while they're down. And so notice this humility that Paul is describing in Epaphroditus, this obedience that he's describing, but also this call of humility to say, when I send him back, I want you to be humble toward him. Let's read this. We're in the 25th verse, Philippians 2. Yet I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. And notice this huge compliment. It's just over and over. My brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Now, we, we have an expression today. We say, well, Paul was piling it on. He was. He was making sure that the people back home knew what this man meant to him. Since he was longing for you all. See, that's the homesickness. And was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. That was his concern for them. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, just showing how much he loved him. Therefore, I send him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness. And I love this phrase. And hold such men in esteem. Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Maybe what Paul is saying there is, look, we all know this didn't go as it was planned. But listen, this is a good man that did his very best. He delivered the money. He encouraged me. If he would have died, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow. You want to make me happy? When I send him back, you receive him with gladness and you hold him up. Paul, why should we hold him up? Because when men and women strive to do the right thing, even when they stumble, you still hold them up. Who would do that? The humble. The humble realize that our business isn't holding people down. Our business isn't putting people down. Our business is being like the Lord. Let us become humble so that we can lift up others. He left the riches of heaven so that he could come down and lift up others. It's some type of modern day parable. It's kind of weird, but it kind of makes a good point. Walter was working in the mail room of the largest corporation in the world. He looked over and he saw a roach and he was about to stomp on that roach and the roach cried out and said, don't kill me, I can do anything you want. My name's Milton. Walter said, really? I'd like a promotion out of the mail room. He said, by tomorrow you'll have it. 
And Walter was junior executive the next day. He saw Milton again. He said, since I didn't kill you, could you make me vice president? He said, sure. In short order of time, he became vice president. And next time he saw Milton, he said, hey, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to go ahead and be chairman of the board, have the corner office on the top floor. He said, no problem, I can do that. Walter found himself staring out of the window day after day, telling himself how great he was, how he was the most powerful man in the world. He was the chairman of the board of the most powerful corporation in the whole world. One day, he went out and he saw a little boy bowing down. He said, son, what's wrong with you? The boy looked up and he said, nothing's wrong. I'm praying. He said, are you praying to Walter? I am the most powerful man in the world. The boy laughed and said, no, I'm praying to God. He said, you mean I'm not your hero? He said, no, Jesus Christ is my hero. He's the greatest man that's ever lived. Walter was perplexed. He went back into his office and he found Milton. He said, Milton, I want to be like Jesus Christ. Milton, bug-eyed, no pun intended. And, and he said, like Jesus Christ? Walter says, sure, can you do that? He says, sure, I can do that. But are you sure you want that? He says, absolutely, more than anything. I want to be like Jesus. He said, okay. He was back in the mailroom. Our human nature defines greatness. And the world defines greatness so different than what God defines greatness. Jesus Christ was the example of greatness. Leaving the place of comfort and riches to come down low so others could be lifted up high. Humility and obedience to lift up God and others. That's a life worth living. That's a life worth dying for. This evening, if there's anything we can do to help you take steps closer to God, we'd love to do that. If you're ready to be baptized into Christ or you're ready to be restored, you want prayers, you want further study, whatever we can do,